Hey everybody, thank you for listening to the Small Town Podcast. Connor here. If you find this episode valuable, be sure to share it with your friends and leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening. Also, I invite you to check us out on Patreon if you're interested in helping to support this podcast. You can find a link to that in the description of this episode. All right, enjoy the conversation. Yeah, it's the difference between a minimalist approach to the faith and a, and a maximalist approach, or it's the difference between having part of something or the fullness of something. I'll tell you, by our nature, we want the fullness of things typically. If I were to give my kids half of a cookie, they would want the other half of the cookie. So uh, I find that for coffee, it sort of has the same element to uh-huh. some extent, where there are things that there are ways to enjoy it for itself as well, and yeah. sort of the attentiveness that you spend on it. Well, part of it for me has been learning how to uh, how to handle it myself, how to grind it myself, and mm-hmm. to pour over and all of that stuff. Um, just the pleasure of slowing down, and you kind of force yourself to sit down and enjoy something, and it makes your life better. You live longer, I hear. So slow food is yeah. the best food, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, have you heard the legend of how coffee was discovered? No, I don't believe so. Okay, so I was in um, Ethiopia on a mission trip in, I guess, late high school. And the uh, the story is that coffee originated in Ethiopia. I'm sure there are probably multiple countries that claim coffee as their as their own thing. But the story is that they were there were goat shepherds, and uh, their goats stayed up all night, and they were wired. And uh, they figured out that it was from these berries that they were eating. So naturally, of course, they had to try it for themselves, and that's how coffee got started. Well, I wouldn't doubt it. I think that it is an absolutely fascinating aspect of human history how certain foods or medicinal plants have been discovered yeah. through the attention that people have paid to the natural world around them. And the willingness to uh, experiment on themselves. Exactly, exactly. I, I think that those are characteristics that by and large are lost to modern society. Yeah. Where we're conditioned to instant gratification. Well, most medicine is plant-based, isn't it? It is. I mean, if you get down to it, most of it comes from plants that, you know, it's common knowledge that's been passed down generation to generation. Yeah. You know, uh, the the, uh, treatment for tuberculosis originated in, uh, if I remember correctly, John Wesley giving the prescription to uh, dig a hole, and I, and I think there was more to the context of this hole. There may have been elements of it I'm not recalling, but dig a hole and then bend down and put your face down in this hole and breathe in the air from this hole. Okay. Well, as it turns out, something that was in the ground in the area where he would prescribe that people would do this, there was some sort of a bacteria or something that they would breathe in and that would actually deal with the tuberculosis. Hmm. And that became the origin of, of the, the treatment for tuberculosis. It was turned into a medicine. And, and you find so many instances of sort of these, these elements of uh, folklore or old wives' tales or things like that mm-hmm. where people have observed in nature because either they or someone near to them or an animal has participated in something and it's had this effect. And then, even if for, you know, however long the scientific method didn't exist as such, they still would test it and trial it and that sort of thing until they were able to narrow down to some consistency in the, in the cause and effect relationship there. Yeah. 
but the attention that's necessary to go through that, the dedication, the patience, and as you said, the sort of the courage and boldness to be the guinea pig yourself. I mean, how many casualties along the way? Well, we I, can eat this mushroom, but we can't eat that mushroom. Yeah, um, that's how they. You know, um, where did I where did I hear this? Actually, just not too long ago. Um, the whole process of learning that you need to wash your hands as a as a as a doctor before yeah. treating somebody, you know, they had in in uh, I believe it was in England they had all of these women who would die right after childbirth, hmm. and uh, somebody I don't recall who it was somebody said you need to wash your hands, and the majority of the doctors just said forget yeah. that you know, and so they would go in the morning so they would they would do is they would treat they would they would dissect and examine the cadavers of these women in the morning and then they would go in the afternoon and they would birth children and more and women continue to die and it took 30 years for them to realize that they were transferring bacteria from these cadavers to these mothers mm-hmm. and if they just washed their hands in between the two things then th- when they did start doing that the death stopped yeah but, you know, again, like you say, how many people die before we... Well, we think of that as, as common knowledge, that, that, like, of course you would wash your hands, but that wasn't a given. I no. mean, public, public sanitation in America didn't really get going until uh, after 1890. Right. Right. So, I mean, how many generations of people with, uh, you know, horse poop in the streets... That's right. And, you know, no, there's no magic truck that comes and takes away your garbage. That's right. So... And if you have children or experience with children, you know that it's still not always a given. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a great, uh, great warm up. <laughs> right. Yeah, really. Father Matthew, I appreciate you coming back. My pleasure. It's great. I had a Enjoy blast last time. And As did uh, I. I. I appreciate your, uh, your, your willingness to come back for a round two. Thank God. Um, I have been trying to think of the right way to get the ball rolling on this episode. Um, I've got a, a couple ideas in my head of, of, where I would like for this to go, but I also don't want to put too many restrictions on it. Um, last time, we covered a wide range of topics, right? right? And it was more breadth than depth. Um, and I think it was actually really good because that was our first our first meeting, our first interaction. It's my first time talking with someone who actually identifies with the uh, capital O Orthodox mm. tradition. Um, so I think for my part, it was really helpful to have a, a big overview like that, a bunch of different topics. Um, and just kind of go wherever we wanted to. If if you're willing, I'd like for this one to be a little more depth than breadth, if possible, um, particularly around the phrase, one true church. Um, I noticed several times in the topics that we discussed last time that we could have easily have let that phrase dominate the conversation mm-hmm. because I kept hearing it in my head as we were talking about different things, um, particularly in regards to... Uh, I think you use the word reposed, reposed saints, mm. uh, things like that. Right. Um, but I also didn't want to impose things on that first conversation uh, in a way that cheapened it, if that makes sense. Um, right. So now on the second round, if you're willing, I'd like to go a little deeper. And if that's all we talk about, I'm happy. But if there are other topics you'd like to discuss also, I'm happy to go there too. So I guess before we dive in, is there anything that you want to have happen with this conversation? Or 
Uh, not off the top of my head, nothing sort of preordained. I would say that as last time probably indicated, being a lateral thinker, I have a tendency of going off on rabbit trails. So yeah. we may want to go deep. I know my intellectual waters are only about ankle deep, so I don't know how far we can go, but we'll, well do you're, our best. You're talking so. to, uh you're talking to someone who, uh, to date, has only had two conversations uh, with okay. an Orthodox priest anyway, so I, I don't, we'll, see how, we'll see what deep looks like. I think the one thing I would say with regard, just as a, as a condition for a conversation about that idea, mm. that phrase of the one true church, is that we, were, we need to know at the outset we're not going to be very successful about talking about that. Okay. We're going to be talking around that idea, because there's no way to isolate the concept of the one true church from everything that we do living in the church. So the only way you would be able to isolate that as a topic unto itself would be to dissect and kill it, rather than to dissect, okay. to understand, and then to, you know, reconstitute it. Yeah. So we'll, we can talk about it, but the way we're going to ultimately probably end up talking about it is by talking about a lot of other things, and then seeing how when you take all of these together sort of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Okay. So coming at it indirectly, kind I of laying so. the conceptual framework. Yes. Okay. Because the reason for that is that in a basic presupposition for me as an Orthodox Christian with regard to understanding the Church is that it is a mystery. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it cannot be defined. It can be described to some extent, um, and it can be primarily experienced, but to to define it or to put it into a box, ultimately what you would be looking at would be something other than that mystery itself. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, this this right here is a perfect example of why I am grateful to have a podcast, because this, for me, is an act of discovery. I, yeah. I do not know where this conversation is going to go other than what we just talked about right now. Um, and I have been uh, pleasantly surprised that almost every time I sit down with someone on this podcast, it goes in a direction that I didn't expect. Right. Right. So right. we ended up talking about martial arts last time. That's right. I didn't see that coming. And it was <laughs> right. great. It was really encouraging, um, you know, to find that commonality. And I don't know how much of this will be... Uh, healthy agreement or healthy disagreement. I have no idea. Um, but right. I appreciate your uh, willingness to take the risk with me. So Most certainly. Well, yeah. communion between people is as much a mystery as anything in life yeah. as well. So. Yeah. Well, I think people also find this really compelling, this act of discovery, mm -hmm. getting to listen in on it, you know, an hour and a half conversation where no one really knows what's going to happen. It, I think the risk is very compelling for people. Right. You don't really get that in in some other formats. You don't see that much on TV, but right. you get it with a podcast. So that's right. it's been, it's been a, a fun revelation for me. Thank so. God. It is a really, it truly is a wonderful medium yeah. to be able to discover yeah. and to, uh, to have some connection and to have, if not always a meeting of the minds, at least a, a discussion of minds. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, on, on, on topics like this, an hour and a half is much better than 20 minutes. Sure. So, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, Okay, so let's try this on as, as a way in, and uh, I'll, I'll throw an analogy your direction, and then let's see 
how it strikes you and where you'd like to go with it and, and whatever. So this is what I hear when I hear the phrase one true church. Um, you and I both uh, have some martial arts experience. Um, I, I grew up in uh, a school here in town in America taught by an American um, that tried to focus more on the discipline side rather than the sport side, right? So it was very um, tradition-based, but still watered down. It wasn't like we were in Japan 500 years ago, uh, immersing every aspect of our life into the martial arts pursuit, the kar- right. the karate pursuit. Um, so when I hear a phrase like one true church, I think of a situation similar to a conversation between two different martial arts schools that are both pursuing the same thing, but are coming at it from very different, what would we say, cultural expectations, maybe? So the American school taught by an American, taught by, um, taught in maybe, maybe a looser style of training. You know, you don't have to bow every time you enter the dojo. You can come in street clothes on occasion, things like that. They might say that, you know, the person in that school might say, I'm still pursuing the same thing. I'm still trying to, um, reach the same end that I would be reaching in, in a, in a quote unquote deeper school. Um, but the person in the quote unquote deeper school, the person who actually sacrificed more and moved to Japan and did all of these things might say, yes, but you're missing out on so much and you might be pursuing martial arts, but are you pursuing karate? Um, in the fullest sense of the word. Right. Okay. That's kind of what strikes me when I hear it. And so, in fact, when you read some of the texts that come out of the karate uh, tradition, you find that there is very strongly a sense that this is a lifestyle and and not just something that you tag on to the rest of your life. Yes. Um, as someone might tag on maybe a weekly workout or something like that, or right. whatever it might be, I think that I think it's a fair analogy in in some respects. Um, I think that you would find sort of that same approach to uh, you know in in the context, say that you have somebody who does painting by numbers, and yes, they get a certain measure of joy and pleasure and self-satisfaction out of the process and the final product. But then if you were to turn to a professional artist who is steeped in their very lifestyle as being a manifestation of their art, and then all of that sort of is imbued into the canvas or whatever, then they would look at it and say, yes, but what you have is not the equivalent to what I at least potentially have. Mm-hmm. Or to use, since we spoke about him a number of times last time, C.S. Lewis's oh, example. Oh, he's back again. Yeah. C.S. Lewis's example of the difference between a sandbox and the beach. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. What's in the sandbox comes from the beach. And to a limited extent, if you play in the sandbox, you are participating in a part of what is on the beach. But it is not the beach at the same time. 
So I think that there are a lot of ways in which we can make that analogy, a lot of context in life where we would see somebody say the same thing. Yes, you enjoy a cup of tea, but it's not the same thing as a Japanese tea ceremony, whatever it may be. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. I don't know that in and of itself it is a perfect one-to-one correlation with, sure. with the church. Yeah, every um, analogy is going but, to break down. Exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that one of the... One of the struggles that sometimes or uh, we have to overcome when we when we talk about this idea is a sense of uh, that that the person who says I'm a member of the one true church that they are being arrogant. How dare you say that you are the one true church that you are a member of it? And of course, very likely by implication, that I'm not a member of the one true church. That is an issue we don't struggle with a whole lot in other contexts. If I'm painting by numbers and the artist says to me, that's not the same thing, I would in all humility say, yes, you're absolutely right. This is not the same thing as, as what you do, Yeah. right? Um, yes, my cup of tea that I get maybe through a Keurig or with a tea bag is not the same thing as the tea ceremony. Um, we, don't, we don't have that sense that this person is being arrogant in making that claim, but we do in the context of talking about what the church is. And I think that that goes back to certain presuppositions that we start out with. And I think that in American culture and Western culture, by and large, we have a very individualistic approach to many things, in fact, in life. And we take that individualistic uh, approach and mean thereby that I am the arbiter of what is true or valuable or good or fill in the blank. And so if somebody says to me, this church is the true church, our gut instinct is to say, how can you say that? You've bypassed me as the arbiter of truth. And, and we find this to be the case very oftentimes in our culture. We find it to be the case in our religious culture and our political culture and a whole lot of different elements. And, uh, and I think that I would say from my perspective, bearing in mind that my perspective is one that has the breadth of, of being part of many Protestant traditions as right. well as now the Orthodox Church, my perspective would be that that presupposition prevents us from being able to see what the Church is and what it is supposed to be and what it is called to be because it is so focused on myself in a lot of respects. And um, if I am the arbiter of, of truth, whether that has to do with the interpretation of Scripture, or if it has to do with where the church is or where the church isn't, or anything like that, then I'm throwing to the side a whole lot of elements of what even is in Scripture in its description of what the church looks like, because I'm focused on a red herring, which is you've got to, God is in the dock, C.S. Lewis again. God is in the dock. I'm the one who has to judge. The church is See in the how many dock. times we can bring I know, him into like this we, conversation. If this were visual, we could have like a counter up yeah. in the corner or something like that. <laughs> a little every time. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, the church is in the dock. Okay. In the West, the church is in the dock. And the individual is the one who is the judge. So we determine, and I know because when I looked at the Orthodox Church, I made a plethora of lists of theology, scriptural interpretation, historical key moments, how those are supposed to be interpreted, et cetera, et cetera. And 
I started from the presupposition, I need to determine whether or not this is true, this is accurate, does this agree with me, ultimately. And, and it took a shift of mind and heart away from that to be able to begin to see things from the inside, which is why, you know, can any good thing come out of, um, out of Nazareth? And, and Philip says, come and see. Yeah. You know, so we're called to come and see. We have to, to some extent, the only way we can fully understand it is by, by participation. And then I'll go back to what I said earlier, what I alluded to, which is that ultimately the only way for us to truly understand what the Church is, is by experience and participation, ultimately. Um, Well, this ties very closely to uh, something we talked about last time we met, which is no no person can be the Church by himself or by herself. Right. Yeah, so I think I may have quoted last time the, the saying within the Orthodox tradition, uh, a man alone is, a Christian alone is no Christian at all. Yeah. Well, there's also another saying that that we can link in our conversation to that, which is um, anyone who has uh, God as his father must have the church as his mother. And uh, of course, that phrase right there, that can raise question marks and exclamation points and yeah. stuff like that in people's minds also. But that is a presupposition of an Orthodox Christian in their understanding of, of what it means to be a Christian. Now, why is that? Because the Church is the body of Christ. It is Christ himself. It is our unity with Christ. And based on that single experience, which we then turn into a principle and a doctrine of our theology, of course, because the doctrines are just descriptions of what our experience of God is, So we've had an experience that the Church is Christ himself. It is our unity in Christ. And uh, and so that then becomes part of our doctrine. But because that's our experience, that's what we're safeguarding. Whether it's with our doctrine, our traditions, whatever it may be, what we're safeguarding is this unity in Christ, which we experience the Church as being. And... uh, and all of the different implications and manifestations of that in our day-to-day lives as well. I mean, I think I said last time, the word orthodox means right belief and right worship. So everything in the way that we live our life in the Church is both is defined to some extent by that, is bound by that, is influenced or, or inspired by that, and informed by that. That we, we have a right belief in who God is, and that right belief leads us to a right worship, and that right worship leads us to a greater understanding of the truth of who God is, and it just sort of has a spiral quality to it, where we keep coming back from point A to point B, then back to point A, but now on a higher level. So it's not circular, it's spiral in that sense. And so we, we, we go back and forth between a deeper understanding of the truth into a deeper practice of worship into a deeper understanding of truth and, and back and forth. And and that experience of unity and truth and worship is what the Church is, because that is what Christ has given to us. That's how he's manifested himself to us, as truth and as life, i.e. worship. So to be a member of the Church is to have the truth and have that worship, have that life, to participate in the divine life, or as Peter would put it, to be partakers of the divine nature. Um, that, that is what the Church is. 
it is the divine life of the Trinity manifest in the human condition such that we are able to ourselves participate in it as humans who are united to God by grace, not, not by nature, but by grace. I'm probably muddying the waters more than I I'm don't clarifying think so. it. But. I don't think so. This is, this, is a good, uh, this is a good first step in, I think, to, to, what, we're, to what we're talking about. In, in my sort of conception of the church and Christianity... I see two possible dangers, um, and and one side is allergic to one danger, and the other side is allergic to the other danger. Um, in the generally, this is generally speaking, in the Protestant side of things, we tend to be allergic to tradition in a, in an unhealthy way. I also see a, a possible danger on the other side, where. Um, and I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, there can be an allergy, well, for now, we'll just say an allergy to an experience of God that doesn't involve tradition. Um, what kind of experience would that be? How would, how would that look? Um, I'm thinking for right now of the Desert Fathers. They were part of a, of a group, but there were some Desert Fathers that lived alone. Um, there may be some tradition involved in that, but it was very much uncharted territory every time. So St. Anthony the Great is considered to be the father of monasticism. Okay. He became a monk because he was at the Divine Liturgy. Okay. And he heard the Gospel reading for the day, which said, go and sell all that you have and come follow me, which actually is the Gospel reading for us this upcoming Sunday. Okay. Uh, as as reg- regards the when we're actually recording this, you know, right? And uh, and he heard that go and sell all that you have and come follow me, and that became a word of life for him. So he decided to do exactly that. So he sold everything that he had and he went into the wilderness and became what we would call a monastic. He did so within the context of the Sunday divine liturgy worship of the church. In fact, I believe it was in Constantinople, so the great church that he was at when that happened. Although I could be wrong on that point of history. Sure, sure. And it was within the context of the traditional reading of the scripture, in the traditional practice of the liturgy, in the traditional practice of the church calendar, that that inspiration, that uh, charism of the Spirit came to him and sent him into the desert. And compelled him to abandon organized Christianity? He did not, though. Because the source of all of our information, the life of St. Anthony, comes from the great bishop of the Church and saint of the Church, St. Athanasius the Great. They were great friends. And it may well have been that St. Anthony confessed to St. Athanasius. So his connection was still always with the Church. And it is still to this day the practice of monastics. Two things. Just to use this example of those who go off and they become hermits and that sort of thing, that for one thing, you cannot of your own choosing go off to become a monastic, or pardon me, go off to become a hermit. Okay. If you are already a monastic and you choose, you'd like to become a hermit, you have to have the blessing of your community. And you also have to return to that community for the services of the church. And that may only be the great feast of the church, but such as Easter or the Nativity or something like that, 
but you still have to be there, connected to those. You still have to have a confessor father and a spiritual father. And it would seem, from the details that have been revealed to us, that that very much was the case for St. Anthony, as our example. <coughs> Pardon me. And it is also evident from the life of St. Anthony, since he was known, according to St. Athanasius, for having been like a bee going around to flowers, collecting all of this, um, uh, all this pollen and creating this honey, that he went from church father to church father, from monastic and hermit to hermit and whatnot, mm -hmm. collecting from them the wisdom of their experience. So our, our, the, the, it is only if you take the Desert Fathers out of the context of the church that they appear to have separated themselves from the institution of the church and the tradition of the church. Okay. But we would see it as being completely within that tradition because there are all of these elements that are right there. Uh, part of the, what their experience was, okay. and a deep dive into, again, as an example, the life of somebody like St. Anthony illustrates that. Okay. Okay. Is there is there more there that you would like to elaborate on? or? Well, I think I, I could pull other examples. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you have instances, so first of all, also, uh, uh, Anthony is considered the father of monasticism, but primarily of the Hermetic monasticism. Although it's very evident when you read the fathers how often they seem to, to get together. You know, otherwise we wouldn't have all of these great conversations that they had between themselves, you know, within their, within their maybe spread out communities, but they had a community. Sure. And oftentimes between them and people in the world or in the church who came to them, you know. Uh, there's a story, not to go too far down the rabbit hole of sure, stories, sure. but there's a story of a of a bishop who came to a desert father, and they spent the day in prayer and, uh, and in theological dialogue, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then in the evening, when it was time for their meal, they pulled out their food from their bags, and the monk pulled out his vegetables, let's say. The bishop pulled out his food, and he had meat. And the monk said, in the 40 years or whatever that I've been a monastic, I have not once touched meat. And the bishop said, you've done well. In the 40 years that I've been a bishop, I have taken the food that the parishioners have given to me and eaten it in thanksgiving, but I've never had an ill word against any man. And the monastic bowed before him, and he says, you have done better than me. It wasn't a competition, per se, although I would say if there's going to be any competition among men, it should be a competition to see, can I, be, can I love you more than you love me? That sort of thing. You know? yeah. um, but... The context here is what I'm wanting to get to, which sure. is that you have this familiarity, this dialogue, not an animosity between a hierarch, i.e. one who stands for the institution, let's say, and one who appears to stand for the anti-institution. But in fact, there's not. There's harmony there. Okay. And then also you have the whole with somebody like St. Pacomius, who is the father of Cenobitic monasticism or community monasticism. And again, you find some of those same themes that are there. Um, and, and it goes the other way as well. Even if monasticism has come out of the quote-unquote institutional traditional church, it has also influenced that. So our, our liturgical practice is actually a mixture of what we would call the great church typicon, so that which came out of, out of Constantinople, um, Hagia Sophia, but also of the monastic typicon. So, in other words, the regulations, guidelines for how we liturgize. So that's one illustration of where those two are feeding each other, 
even today, laity are oftentimes recommended, go take a pilgrimage to a monastery. You know, spend some time there. Feed your spiritual lives through what the monastics have to tell you, because the monastics are not anti-world, they're not anti-institution, they are the front line of the soldiers in the spiritual warfare. And so we go to them because they are praying for us and with us, and they are participating in the same liturgy and the same tradition as we are. And they're doing it perhaps in a more, we might, some might say extreme, others might say more pure, whatever, fuller form than perhaps we can do in the world. So parochial practice typically, typically is to have liturgy on Sundays. Other times as well, we'll have a liturgy actually this evening. But it's not likely to be every day in a parish. People have jobs, families, other obligations. It would be difficult to even have somebody who could chant the service for me every day mm -hmm. if I was to do that. However, the monastics do that. They have the liturgy every day. They don't do that because they're better than us. They do that because they're part of us. We are together. There's that unity in Christ. And that unity in Christ is manifest through our liturgical unity, uh, that we are practicing the same liturgy, worshiping the same way, even if their frequency is greater. It's the same worship. They're in the same fast. They have the same types of icons, the same fill-in-the-blank. So our, our unity is still in that right belief, the truth, and right worship, the liturgizing, wherein we practice our royal priesthood and bring all things into Christ. They're doing that, we're doing that. They're not outside the tradition, they're not outside of the institution. Can that unity still exist even if one, even if one of those two parts don't claim the name capital O Orthodox? So I think that... Um, I think that orientation is a significant issue in this sense. Okay. So I think that it's possible for a person to orientate themselves toward Christ and, and strive to serve Christ, to love Christ, to be obedient to Christ, and still not be within the fullness of the body of Christ. I think that, I think that we have a lot of examples of that sort of thing. So I'll give you a couple of examples, and it's interesting. We're having this conversation. I had a conversation earlier this morning in which there are a lot of connections between what I discussed then and what I've discussed now, yeah. we're discussing now. The writings of somebody like Plato or Aristotle or anybody like that, or even Lao Tzu, as I said in my conversation that I had this morning, those, those men for us in the Orthodox Church serve or sort of fill the role almost of a proto-evangelist for us. That mm -hmm. would be the term that we would use for them in the sense that there is truth in what they wrote. Not that everything that they wrote is truth but that there is truth in what they wrote, and wherever there is truth, it is Christ's truth. They provide sort of the substrate for our thinking. In we many, are indebted to them whether we realize it or not. That's right. And many yeah. of the early church fathers, such as the great Cappadocian fathers, St. Gregory um, the Theologian, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Basil the Great, they were well educated in the uh, Greek philosophers and in rhetoric and this sort of thing, and they utilized much of this while correcting it or rejecting portions of it as, as need be. Yeah. But they understood that, that these men nonetheless had some of the truth, and therefore we considered them in the church as being proto-evangelists. And there is even a monastery on Mount Athos, which is this great monastic community. It's actually a community of, mon of monasteries on a peninsula in Greece. 
20 large monasteries and a bunch of small, tiny ones, uh, to put it simply. And uh, in one of those monasteries, when you walk into the doors of the church, into the first section, which we would call the narthex, they have icons of these men, without halos or any of the indicators that this, this person is specifically a Christian or a member of the body of Christ, but they are there in that first part where, in our understanding of the, even the architecture of the church, <clears throat> you're coming from the world and progressively journeying closer to Christ, who is enthroned in the sanctuary. Not to go down too far the road of the, of the structure of the church and the symbology or whatever there, but, but they're there because they're not rejected totally in that sense. Somebody who believes in Christ because they found a gospel laying in the dirt of the road in some third world country, but has no context for any Christian tradition, they still can come to a knowledge of Christ. Paul tells us in Romans that at the very minimum, we have our own conscience that bears witness against sure. us or for us. Sure. So the idea that, that a person can come to a relationship on some level with Christ is always a potential in any context. Salvation is available to all men, and they're not going, no, nobody is going to be judged by a standard that they were never even aware of. So if they don't, even, if they don't know anything, they're going to be judged by the standard of their own conscience. Number three in our little ticker up here in the corner with C.S. Lewis would be in The Last Battle. There's a character who's sort of a pagan character, and when he sees Aslan, he says, you are who I have striven to worship, I just did not know you by name, paraphrasing. You know, I think that there are a lot of Yeah, he probably ruffled some feathers when he wrote that. <laughs> I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Um, but I believe that, nonetheless, that that's truth. Oh, it's a beautiful part of the story. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's a... It's a pivotal element of the story in a yeah. lot of respects, I think. And there have been, there have been varying different views and nuances in, in how salvation works out for all those individuals in different contexts within the history of Christianity. That's a whole other, whole other topic for us. My point right now really basically is that when it comes to salvation in its most bare-bones bare form, that is for all of humanity— God, in, his, in a mystery, works the salvation for all men and makes it there available to all men. We're, to some extent here, when we're talking about participation in the church and the one true church and the body of Christ, we're talking about a fullness of that salvation, that we're not simply being saved to get into heaven and avoid hell. Paul tells us in Colossians, you can be saved, but as one leaping over fire. Uh, so that basically means you can get into heaven and your pants are on fire. And, uh, and that's a possibility. I'm not by any means ascribing that to anybody or any group of, any, of people. Sure. But simply that Paul says that's a possibility. That being a possibility, it is also a possibility that the fullness of salvation, the fullness of unity with Christ is there for us. And not only union with Christ in the sense that, oh, I don't know, I mean, you could say it a lot of different ways or have different meanings to it, that I'm, I'm truly a good person or I have the fullness of truth, although you have to explain that because truth is also something that you experience and live, not just ascribe to, right. but, but rather that I am participant in the life of the Trinity. That is the fullness. That's why for us as Orthodox, sort of the, the ultimate element of our theology of salvation is not heaven or hell as a, in the senses of reward or punishment, but of theosis, which means a vision of God. 
deification, which means to become, to be deified, to be like God, that is salvation for us as Orthodox. That's mm-hmm. our conception of salvation, is that we become like God. That can throw a lot of people off because they think, oh, so you believe maybe in some form of pantheism, that we all become gods. No, we don't. You believe that somehow you're assumed into the persons of the Trinity. No, we don't. You become new members of the Trinity. No, we don't believe any of that. We become by grace what Christ is by nature. In his incarnation, he showed us perfect divinity and perfect humanity in perfect unity between the two. And the Church is an extension of that, which we become part of when we become part of the Church. So to to speak about being the one true Church is not an element of arrogance or anything like that. It is an element of us saying there is one Christ, and we want the fullness of unity with that one Christ, which is what every Christian wants. That's what every Christian wants. There's, by, I mean, that that's sort of a given in many yeah. respects. Yeah, I mean, and and it's it's a it's available to to all of us. It's certainly an element of Christian history that because of divisions within amongst Christians that there has been sort of spans, dark ages or something like that, disconnect between groups of Christians, and and that has led to even an unawareness, and therefore also to misunderstanding about all of this, about Mm -hmm. what those other churches were like, and what it has been like historically and stuff like that. I mean, I remember when I found out about the Orthodox Church the first time, I was an adult, and I thought to myself, all those years of studying church history, where not once did I ever see even the name Orthodox yeah. in anything. I studied church history within my previous Christian tradition, within homeschooling. Had never been brought up. Yeah. Well, here I am in my 20s, and this is only my second conversation ever with right. yeah. an Orthodox priest. Um, okay. This this was what I discovered last time, was that these things branch off, and there are so many different directions you can go. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, this is, this like I said, this is the blessing of uh, of the podcast format. Um, you, you said something last time that I probably should have asked for you to clarify, but I didn't because I got interested in a different tangent pretty soon after. And it was something to the effect of, and I may butcher this, so this is... This, this, is, uh, this is me asking for further exposition and clarification. You said something like, there is a lot of good spiritually that comes from just being part of the organized church. Um, and I think you may have said something like, um, just being in the church can lift you up towards heaven or something like that. I might not be saying it exactly the way you said I'm trying to remember specifically. But anyway, how how does this fit into what we're talking about? So I would say that we have to start again by looking at a preconception, a, a presupposition behind some of the questions here. And and in this sense I'm like any like a good politician where I, I choose to answer the question I wish had been asked instead of the question okay, that was all right, asked. All right? All right. So I'm gonna start there. Yeah. I think that in our Western conception of salvation we think of salvation ultimately as being salvation of the soul. Okay. And the implications of that for the body are morality. 
it's it's issues of, of ethics and morality. Okay. All right. For the the mind of the of the church is that salvation is for body and soul, both. In fact, Saint Gregory of Nyssa, you know, re- said once rhetorically, "Where is my soul? It is everywhere that my body is. Where is my body? It is everywhere that my soul is." It may be that in the Garden of Eden there was no division between those two, that there was a dis- that you could say there may have been a distinction to some extent. What that would have looked like, I don't know, but that insofar as we experience a division now, even in our conception of body and soul, that that is perhaps a product of the fall. Well, you can say that the resurrected Christ, his body seems to work differently. That's absolutely right, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, he had a body. Thomas could put his fingers into the nail holes and into the spear hole, right? But at the same time, he was somehow different that they were not always able to immediately recognize him, such yeah. as the disciples on the road to Emmaus, until again he revealed himself to him. But then they yeah. also had that burning in their hearts, so they, there was still, there was some understanding, some recognition, but it now also needed to grow. Anyway, yeah. this, this idea that salvation is about the soul leads us to a disincarnated theology. To be a part of, I wouldn't say the so much the organized church or the institutional church, but to be part of the church is to be part of an incarnate church, a church that is about body and soul. So it can look from the outside like, look at all those man-made traditions you have. You know, you fast, you make the sign of the cross, you make prostrations, you kiss icons, you have incense, you do all kinds of different things, and you have a calendar. You have all of these different things, and it looks like you're following traditions of of men. And obviously we would say that at least there's some element in which God rails against that in the Old Testament. I think we can, we'll set that aside for now, but I think there's an explanation for understanding that, so that they're, they're not in opposition to each other. Well, what we would say is, no, we don't have traditions of men so much as we have every aspect of our life being assumed into the church. It's being taken up into the church. So, naturally I eat, I bring that which is natural, and I elevate it to the level of the spiritual, so I bless what I eat, and now it is a form of communion with God. I take a shower, I make the sign of the cross, I shall sprinkle me with hyssop, and I shall be clean, that shall wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. That's my prayer. And now my shower is not just about the cleansing of my body, it has been made a spiritual exercise as well. Yeah, um, I have to eat, but I also fast so that I learn not to see my life as being, as originating in, my, in the natural food, that I'm eating dead things. And if I find those things as being the source of my life, then all I'm actually receiving is death. My life comes from Christ. So I fast from it and I feast so that I have the balance between those things. There are all kinds of different illustrations we can use to tie all of the different practices into that, where what we are doing is taking an element of the natural life, we are healing it insofar as by sin it has fallen below nature. Paul talks about this, that which is below nature, according to nature, and above nature. We are healing it if it is below nature and making it natural, but then we are taking that which is natural and we're bringing it above nature by our priestly role of uniting it to Christ. And what is the church in terms of how it manifests itself? It is our life, our natural life, now manifesting itself on an above-nature level, a supernatural level, 
because of its unity with Christ himself now. So the truth of Christ is now manifest in every aspect of my life, potentially. And every aspect of my life is now a liturgical act of worship, potentially. So our membership in the church is in the body of Christ, and we have to think of it that way. It's not membership in an organization, per se, or an institution, per se. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the place where the unity, or our unity in Christ and with each other is manifest. It's the place where we receive the Holy Spirit. Um, so it's where all of that is taken up into it, and it is made itself, in a sense, sacramental. Uh, so we're, we're, it's a priestly role to be a member of the church. We are a royal priesthood. So, um, and so what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say that it's not about an institution. Like, being part of an institution has no, strictly, has no benefit to us, per se. Being part of a uh, organization doesn't necessarily benefit us. Yeah. It is being a part of the body of Christ, wherein everything in my natural life is made supernatural, in a sense, where it is, where it is now participant in, di- in the divine, that is what is beneficial to us. I can worship God in a hole somewhere by myself, but my worship of him is not going to take all the various different aspects, and I, and I say that, I will admit, I say that with some hesitancy just for the purposes of our conversation, but it's not going to incorporate all aspects of my life. It is certainly not going to incorporate the communal aspect of human life. Okay. And, and this is the other element. Christ tells us the two great commandments, love the Lord thy God, love thy neighbor as thyself. About that second, he says, it is like unto it, equal to it. So we learn to love God through love of our na- neighbor. We love our neighbor more through learning to love God more. There's a relationship between those two things. Again, sort of a spiral quality to it. Therefore, it is necessary that if I am actually in Christ, I'm also with my neighbor. Okay. You know, I, that's why a Christian alone is no Christian at all. Yes. There's an in-between. There's, so there's, there's a, a Christian trying to worship by himself in a cave, and then there's, there's uh, the long-standing Orthodox tradition that is literally, at this point, thousands of years old. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an in-between, and I think that's where the question mark is for me. Because so, the in-between would be Christians gathering together in the name of Christ, worshiping together, fellowshipping together, um, uh, by all apparent accounts, um, experiencing the Holy Spirit. Um, they just don't have the name Orthodox, capital O. Right. And I would encourage people not to be hung up on that capital O Orthodox at the moment in order okay. to conceive of what the church is, because notice I haven't, I haven't said, I don't think even once, that when you are united to the Orthodox Church, right, I've said when you're united to the Church, when okay. you're united to the body of Christ, because the, calling it the Orthodox Church, while I don't disagree with that, requires some preconceptions to get you to that point. Okay. The church existed for a thousand years without that name. You know, in, in fact, if you look at our textbooks, our, our liturgical books, they you open it up and you look at the inside where it has the title, it will say there, the Orthodox Catholic Church. We're not part of Rome. Mm-hmm. Those words have a meaning 
that is that far supersedes them as what their meaning as a title is. Okay. Orthodox is not a title. It, it means true belief, true worship. Catholic is not supposed to be a title. It means universal or lacking in nothing. So these are descriptors of the one true church, which Christ himself founded. The church, insofar as it has a true name, would be the church or the body of Christ. Um, it is only because of human history, the divisions within Christian communities, that it has been necessary to also describe or define certain parts of, of, the, of Christian history or certain segments of Christians themselves as being this or the other. All right? But when we're talking about the true church, we're talking about something that has an origin far before Pentecost, well, okay, let's back up, far before the Reformation, far before the Great Schism, far before Pentecost, before the Incarnation, it goes all the way back to before the beginning of creation, because the Church is the body of Christ. The Church is union with Christ. Now, you talked about a middle ground, and certainly for purposes of a discussion, we, we're speaking, so to speak, in bold images, bold terms, extremes a little bit. Yeah. And within the life of any individual Orthodox Christian here, we would say that, yes, there is definitely a middle ground. In fact, what there is, is there's a rhythm to life. There's a rhythm to our natural life, there's a rhythm to our spiritual life. And so there are times when, on a pendulum swing, we are more towards a very deep, participation in all aspects maybe of what we might call the institutional elements of the church, and then there are times when we swing back to a more um, personal, uh, even more private sort of manifestation of that. We need to do that. Um, we, 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 we commit ourselves and we, we pursue an intensity, and then when we, when we need to, we step back and we have a cup of tea or coffee you know, that sort yeah. of thing. And, and so we follow the rhythms of our life, and in fact we're called to a discernment and understanding of, of what those rhythms are, to know what is in season and what is out of season, so that we can be a man of all seasons. And, um, and so within the individual life of the Christian, they're supposed to pursue an understanding, a, a discernment like that. That discernment, though, is not, not one that we achieve on our own. St. Anthony, uh, Anthony, as we said, went around like a bee, and he collected the wisdom of all these fathers that were monastics or that were within the quote-unquote institutional church. We ourselves, within the traditionally, we would have a confessor father, a spiritual father. We would have, uh, there would be a, an obedience with, that we would have. Obedience is always a free act of will, though. We just set, put that out there as an asterisk to that statement. Okay. But we are in obedience to somebody. In fact, everybody in the church is in obedience to somebody. Laity are in obedience which is a relationship of trust to their spiritual fathers, which are priests, although you can also have elements of that relationship with peers. Um, priests are in obedience to the bishops, bishops are in obedience to other bishops, and if you get to the highest level of the administrative roles of bishops, so to the even the ecumenical patriarch, he still is in obedience to the synod of bishops. So there's no one bishop, no one person in the church who is the place where the buck stops in terms of who has authority in the church. Everybody is in obedience, and ultimately all of those people, all of us are in obedience to Christ himself, mm -hmm. right? And Christ manifests what that obedience looks like in all of the different traditions. What does obedience look like with regard to food and your relationship to food? Fasting and feasting. 
What does your relationship look like in relation to your neighbor? Love, forgiveness, patience, peace, etc. The Beatitudes, the fruits of the Spirit. What does your relationship uh, look like of obedience in relationship to to God himself, to the Trinity? You have prayer, you have uh, obedience in terms of how you treat your neighbor, and obedience in terms of how you treat things in creation. All of that is tied into that. Um, So all of that stuff is really obedience to God incarnated in all of the different aspects of our life. And there's no aspect of our life that is not taken up into that. Now, that's not something that you can do on your own. That's not something that you... And, and, and even, even somebody outside of the Orthodox tradition intuitively understands that on some level, because, I mean, that is why, that is why all Christians virtually everywhere have some kind of tradition. They... Pretty much all Christians, or all people who call themselves Christians, they'll worship on Sundays. Uh, they have some kind of worship service that typically has some sort of structure to it. They have um, some forms of celebrations of, um, of some kind of, of feast or something like that, because, I mean, there are very few Christian communities that don't celebrate at least Easter and Christmas. Um, there are a lot of days, different ways ascribed to the scriptures. You know, say that the scriptures have a very specific role within the life of the church. What I would, what I would argue, peacefully, yeah, would be that all of those traditions, they have their origin in a historic tradition which itself has not changed, but they're all striving ultimately for the same thing, which is to incorporate the entirety of human life into Christ Himself. What I would say can be argued in some sense as being a difference is because there is one Christ, therefore there's one church since it's his body, I would say that sometimes the difference might look something like this analogy. You're married, I'm married. When I married my wife, after that it would not have, we didn't sit down and say, okay, well, we're married now. You go off and do whatever you want to. I'll go off and do whatever I want to. We can just communicate through texts, and that can be our life, you know, or anything like that, Right. We're, we're still connected to each other because we're texting or whatever, but, but there's not actually a communion of life with each other. Well, I, I, that's sort of an imperfect analogy for what I'm trying to get at, which is that we can communicate with Christ, but, you know, and be connected to him, but at the same time, that's not the same thing as being, like, in him. Uh, my analogies break down and my words certainly break down, but there's, yeah. a, there's a distinction between those two realities. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm tracking with you. It's hard for me to not hear the word institution in my head when you say that, right? Right, because, because the two seem so blended in the orthodox way of doing things. It seems... I. And and you have said you said a lot in our last conversation that you don't really like the word institution in this sort of setting. It's a little bit of a red herring because yeah. it leads to misconceptions of both the orthodox understanding of itself, but also it 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 the way that it is typically used implies that to put it bluntly, applies implies an unawareness of the fact that all Christian traditions are institutions. They yes. all manifest themselves yes. in an institutional way. And we are mi- way more, I would go even further, I would say we're, we're way more 
ritualistic than we realize. Like yeah. almost everything that we do in life is is ritual. Everything. We crave it. Yeah. I mean, we, we sat down in these chairs without realizing it. That's a ritual. We didn't... We shook hands. Yeah. 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 We crave that because ritual, institution, organization are actually ways in which we incarnate union and communion with each other. We know that, we, we implicitly know that on a natural level, and all we do in the church, so to speak, is we elevate those natural things to the supernatural. That's what, I mean, so, so it is actually the most natural thing for the church to be institutional because that which is not assumed is not healed. And if we are institutional, ritual creatures, and that element of who we are is not taken up into Christ, that element is not going to be healed. So it's very natural, in fact, that that would be part of our life. The only reason that I hesitate to use that term is because it does raise so many... Sure. We often have preconceived notions, presuppositions, which are actually the the places where we have an issue, and we're not always aware of those. Like, why does this word raise red flags for me? Because of a preconception that I have, a presupposition that I have that I may or may not be aware of. That's where the real dialogue has to take place. Well, I guess I'm used to thinking... I'm, I'm used to thinking that church and state need to be kept separate. And it seems like... Um, the Orthodox Church is more generally more comfortable with state and and church integration. Than well, that's I am. a very interesting comment. Yeah. Do you mind if I stop you there for a second? Yeah, go for it. I could be completely wrong in that perspective. Um, so there is yeah. definitely a period in Christian history because you can't you can't nec- you can't talk about there's a period in Orthodox history because okay. there was no Orthodox Church as such okay. at the time. Okay. Uh, when Constantine made Christianity legal, there arose this idea, which is born in the writings of St. Paul, uh, and, and actually even Christ, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but of, you know, Paul talks about praying for and being obedient to the rulers of the Lamb. So when Constantine made Christianity legal, there arose within Christianity this conception of symphonia between church and state. That if and, and it has a lot of it does admittedly have some ancient predecessors to it. This this idea that the ruler of the land is ordained in some sense by God, you find that in a lot of cultures. Egypt had it. The yeah. Roman the, the the worship of Roman emperors was part you know born in that element that that aspect as well. So so it has predecessors, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it just simply was a derivative of those things. What it did try to do to some extent was baptize those things. So you had this concept in which the church dealt. I'm putting this very simplistically. Sure. The church dealt with the salvation of the soul, and then the state dealt with the salvation of the body. Now, that is not a formulation that you'll find in the church. I am simp- being very simplistic in saying that, and it yeah. can raise some issues that I'm just not addressing right now. At any rate, the idea was there was an optimism that the two to de- together could, um, could work in conjunction with each other for the salvation of the person, for the whole person, all right? And, and of course, the most classic understanding of what any form of government is, is that it enables every citizen the freedom to become the best, to live to live the good life. And by that I don't mean to be fat and sassy. What I mean by that is 
goodness, to live a life of the good. And, uh, and, and so the idea of government is to free men from many of the uh, natural and social prohibitors to goodness in their life. Of course, governments do not at all always manifest that. All right, so that idea of symphonia was there for a while. Well, before that, the church was persecuted. Even during the time in which that was a concept within the church, the church was persecuted many times. And the majority of modern history of what what we can now call the Orthodox Church has been one of the catacomb church, where whether it has been under Ottoman rule or if it's been under communist rule, the church has been persecuted. So it's it's a little bit... um, We can only speak of one moment in Christian history when there was a a true attempt at uh, real symphonia between the two. Most of the church's history has been one of persecution. You can look potentially, not to go down this road too far, but you can look potentially at the relationships right now in certain traditionally Orthodox countries between the hierarchs and the rulers of the land, yeah, and you could make an right argument yeah. that there is a very tight co- connection between those. I am not there. I am not part of all of that. Sure. I don't know what the truth really is there, uh, so I hesitate to to speak arrogantly and address that as if I do know the truth that's there. What I will say, though, is that when you really look at the history of the Church, before and after the title Orthodox came into play, Before then, it was just a descriptor. Now it's a descriptor and a title. Before and after that, the majority of the history of Christianity has been one, of of Eastern Christianity, let's say, has been one of persecution in relation to it. So ideally, yes, we would want there to be unity between those two things. In many respects, our nation, the United States of America, was founded upon that sort of principle. The very concept of the separation of church and state was meant to be a means for that end, where the two would both work toward goodness in men's life. And by the way, the separation of church and state is not about the the separation of the ways in which the church, Christianity, any church, organizes men's lives and thoughts, or the and, and separation between that and the ways that the the state does. What it is is it's the separation. It, it is a um, it is a guard against there being a state-run church. That is a very different thing than the common, the popularized view of what separation of church and state is. And you go back, you read the founding documents, and it is a separation that is intended to preclude a state-run church or a church-run state. Yeah, It's not that these are now meant to be two separate parts of our lives that are compartmentalized, and the church only deals with this part, and the state only deals with that part. That is, that's a breakage in human nature that is equivalent to the effects of, of the fall, because it creates, a, it creates of a distinction a division. There's a distinction between church and state. A division between church and state leads to breakage within our lives, and we experience that on a daily basis. And so you have some people who want to go far in one direction to absolutely create a breakage, and then you have others who want to go in the other direction, and they actually want a theocracy of some sort. Now, is one right or the other, or more right than the other, or whatever? Well, that's a whole other topic for another podcast. But 
to create a division between church and state is a wholly different issue than to prevent a church-run state or a state-run church. And that's what the Founding Fathers actually were guarding against. Just putting that out there, too. Yeah, yeah. Would you say... um, So I I agreed uh, wholeheartedly when you talked about how the rhythm of the Christian life is one of constant fluctuation between um, being alone and being in community, to back and forth, back Mm -hmm. and forth. Um, Would you say that that rhythm also happens... Um, on a, oh, what's the right word? That that rhythm also applies to the body of Christ as a whole, that there is a rhythm of being more organized and being less organized. Maybe there's a better way to say it. You mean sort of through different epochs of history? Yeah, it seems to me that that if you look back through the the scope of Christian history, the last 2,000 years or so, the, the, the spirit seems to move strongly in different parts of the world in different contexts at different times. And so there have been times when um, the Protestant side of things has experienced a lot of, um, a lot of fruit of the spirit mm-hmm. in, its, in its life. And then there have been other times where you see the same sort of effect in uh, the more organized liturgical side of Christianity. Um, I guess I'm trying, I, I, I think, I think I'm kind of asking the same questions in different ways right. to try to pick your brain on what you think about this. So I don't think I'm asking a new question as much as, do you think that there is a fluctuation that happens in the whole body of Christ? Or do you think that on the whole, it looks more like the, the tradition side of things. So like I said at the beginning, remember, that we were going to more talk around this topic. Yes. Than it's like a diamond. It has many different faces, and yes. we talk about one face and then move to the next, and hopefully by the end we'll have some conception of the whole, right? And I'm still even trying to figure out how to ask the questions in right. the first place, so... Well, and yeah, I mean, and, and I'm trying to figure out how to, how to paraphrase an entire lifestyle, yeah. you know, for, for this. Um, so first of all, I think something that is needed to be said is we are by no means trying to place limits on where and how God can work. Yeah. Like, we're not saying, by, by saying that there is one true church, and again, I want, to, I want to stick for the moment at least with this idea of let's not worry about titles for the church. Let's just, we, Christ is very clear that there's, and Christ and Paul, and the, the, the New Testament is very clear. There's one body, one baptism, one Lord, there's just one church, and it's the body of Christ, okay? Whatever other names we might give to that, let's just say there's that church. So that does not mean that the only place, per se, that Christ can work is in the church. Agreed. What we would say is that it is because of the existence of the church, or it is through the existence of the church, or the church's existence is the way in which Christ works through all parts of human history and all parts of the world, right? So certainly the Spirit can manifest himself in a host of contexts. We would say that the reason that he does so is because the church exists. Certainly there are people who in isolation can somehow come to an awareness of Christ because they found a gospel book somewhere in the drawer in their hotel or whatever, and they come to some understanding, and 
they profess faith in and obedience and submission to Christ. That's true. That is a true conversion. And so Christ is at work there, the Spirit is at work there, the Father is at work there. Right? There are, there are no limitations to how God saves any person. Every aspect of every person's life is part of their process and journey of salvation. Whether they know it or not, whether they are a Christian or an atheist, a pagan, whatever, God is always working salvation unto all men at all times in every aspect of their life. And he does not preclude in any way their salvation, their, their, you know, bringing them to salvation simply because for historical or geographic or intellectual reasons they have not been exposed to this particular thing, right? Parentheses, the Orthodox Church, let's say, right? Or whatever. Um, he's always working out salvation for all men at all times and in all places. Quick tangent sure. from that. Yeah. Uh, just for clarification, uh, you're you're not saying that everyone eventually will be saved that's at the end of time. Completely different. Yeah, that's a completely different topic because yeah. you a person a person can God can throw every means of salvation in a person's path and they can reject every one of them. Right. You know, there's a there's the joke about a guy who's drowning and he says, "Oh Lord, save me," you know, and a boat comes by and they throw a raft out to him and say, "Jump on here and we'll pull you in." He's like, "No, no, no, God's going to save me." Yeah. Helicopter comes by, drops the road down. "No, no, God's going to save me." Finally drowns, gets to heaven. "God, why didn't you save me?" He says, "You fool, I sent you a boat and a helicopter." Yeah. Right? We can reject all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um God never usurps the freedom of our will. He never forces mm-hmm. us, rapes our nature or our freedom or our will in any context. It is, it is in his humility, his condescension, it is in that weakness that is a form of his kenosis, of his self-emptying, that in this way he is weak toward us so that we might choose him instead. So the issue yeah. of what will happen to all men at the end that's a whole other topic. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to... Sure. Yeah, just kind of close that loop real quick. Right, yeah. right. So it wasn't open-ended. Repeat your question again so I can get myself back on track here, too, because I, re- I was running off, t- off track for a moment there. Well, I was, this time around, I was, I was framing it as asking if you see a fluctuation in the entire body of Christ rather than just right. one single individual. So if we are in any way hinting towards some kind of dispensationalism, that, that Christ manifests himself in different dispensations of the Church at, throughout different epochs, no, I, w- I would reject that. There are, that, that would be rooted, I would, I would argue, in, in certain heresies of the early Christian history that, that were dealt with then, and they're just manifestations of the same things. Um, the fullness of the faith has been revealed in Christ. All that can be known about God, the, the Godhead, has been given to us in Christ. The Church is, is Christ, so it is there. What we see in history is the relationship of the Church to other historical context and circum to its historical context at any given period, and so it may be that you're in quote unquote a heyday of the church, and so there is some symphonia between it and the state, and then there's a day when it's not, and so it's being persecuted by this by the state. You can have instances where it would appear like the entire church has turned away from the church from the truth. You know, you go back and you read the experiences of Saint Mark of Ephesus, and there are a council of bishops that are trying to uh, unite East and West when there was a little schism between Rome and the East. 
and and all the bishops for the sake of this quote unquote unity seem on both sides seem to be compromising the truth or at least what they hold to be the truth mm-hmm. except for saint mark of ephesus and um of course, this happened to be one of those instances where the truth is revealed not simply through the hierarchy of the church and the institution or whatever, but by the whole church. All those bishops went back and they were tarred and feathered and stuff by all the, by the laity because they recognized you've just betrayed the truth. We pray for you as our hierarch that you, learn, that you rightly divide the word of truth and you've just denied the truth. Mark, St. Mark was the only one who stood for the truth. And so what do we find? It almost looked like well, and St. Athanasius said this, Athanasius against the world, right? It almost looked like the whole church was only manifest in one person. But the church is something that is, at, the, at one time, at one sen- in one sense, incarnate in that one person, in St. Mark of Ephesus, and maybe nobody else, in St. Athanasius, and maybe nobody else. Although we see in the Old Testament, you know, Lord, go ahead and take me, because there's nobody who believes in you. Oh, really? Well, look at all the prophets I've raised up. Hmm. You know, we, we, we see things like that time and time again. So we don't really know the whole story. Yeah. But it, it is Christ, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So even if the fullness only resides... So and there's, an inter- there's a necessary element of it. Even if the fullness only resides in one or two people, it is still the church. So you can look at historical contexts and circumstances and say, well, maybe, maybe we can, from our limited perspective, interpret this historical moment and say the fullness maybe only resided in St. Mark, St. Athanasius. Maybe. I'm very hesitant to actually say that. I'm just saying that for argument's sake. But then there are other times when it is manifested all over. And of course, St. Mark's story, just like with the prophet, shows the same thing. All these bishops went back, and they discovered that it wasn't only St. Mark. All these people in the church knew what the, church, what the truth was, and they upheld it. It just so happened that it meant that a lot of bishops had to be tarred and feathered, <laughs> or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so the truth doesn't reside only in a hierarch, and it doesn't just reside in a monastic or in a priest or this or the other thing. The truth is Christ. What is truth, Pontius Pilate said, and turned around and walked away, without realizing that the right question was, who is truth? And he stood right before him. You know, so, so we're not safeguarding in talking about the one true church, we might as well say the one true Christ. We're talking about a person, you know, and how we relate to that person. Yeah. And like I said with my illustration earlier, I don't only want to relate to my wife through the connection, through minimal connections. I want the fullness of my relationship with her, you know, which is why for us, marriage is taken into the life in Christ in the church. So we have the holy mystery, the sacrament of marriage, you know, and it's not about my love for her. There's like two minutes in that service where we make a profession of commitment and love to each other. The rest of the marriage service is all about the promises of God being fulfilled in us when we together are faithful in him. In other words, when our natural human love is taken up into his divine love and participates in that. Well, that is an image of what every aspect of our life in Christ is called to be. But it becomes a life that is not isolated, that's not autonomous, that's not individual or private. Personal, not private. Personal and communal. Communal with each other if it's a marriage and a family. Communal because it's with the Trinity. Communal because it's with the rest of the believers. But it is a communion, not a connection. And uh, the, what I'm striving at, what I'm failing to say is that 
It goes beyond simply we are all of like mind. We're connected because we agree with each other in a particular thing. And if we don't agree with each other, not to put too fine a point on it, we'll go and we'll start a new group or something like that. But rather, we are united to each other in the truth and in true worship. And therefore, even our contentions are brought into that relationship in Christ that they might be healed and, you know, everything else too. Mm-hmm. It might be helpful to dwell a bit on the on the the phrase body of Christ because I think I think a lot of people in this part of the world think of that more metaphorically. All right. But we're talking about it quite literally, quite uh as truly as we can that that when Paul says that the church is the body of Christ, he really means it. Right. That's not that's not just a metaphor. Not a metaphor. So, um so first, let's reference when Christ says that those who follow him will eat and drink of his body and blood. Yeah. Right? Many departed from him that day. And the disciples who stayed with him said, this is a hard saying, but where have we got to go? Why did they depart from him if he was being metaphorical there about the Eucharist? They understood that he literally meant, you will eat and drink of my body. And it was a hard saying, and many of them left, and those who didn't only stayed because they had nowhere else to go. When Paul says that the church is the body of Christ, we understand it in the same exact way. This is, this is meant on many different levels, including the literal way. Now, why is that? Well, I'm not going to make many friends, I think, when I say this, but my experience is that very often the religious culture of the West is at worst anti-incarnational. At best, it spiritualizes everything about the Christian life. I know that that is a blunt, bold, and potentially offensive saying in some ways, and I, I say it in all humility and fear and trembling. It's my, it's, it is my experience, it is my heritage, so I do not reject anything. Um, the contrast to that, so, so what are we looking at here? On the one hand, we've got the idea that, let's just, for argument's sake, you've got the concept of, of de-incarnating or, or anti-incarnational with regard to how we treat what the Church is and stuff like that. So we look at it and we say the Church, the church is not really an incarnation of Christ himself. It is not really the body and blood of Christ. And so then we have to ask ourselves, okay, if it's not that, then what is it? So we begin to spiritualize it. And when we spiritualize it, then that actually ends up, even though we mean it as a correction, so that we don't go too far down this institutional road or whatever, and and say the only way it can be the body of Christ, let's say, as an argument I've heard, is by these certain blessings and cryptic motions of the priest's hands or whatever it might be, we understand that it still needs to be something other than just the natural thing. It's not just a club. So we spiritualize it. We don't realize that when we spiritualize it, we are actually putting into practice this more anti-incarnational element, because we are now falling into a kind of Gnostic tendency of separating the spiritualized church from the physical people and things and context in which that takes place, or we manifest it. And it leads to sort of a spiritual-slash-psychological anxiety for us, 
because we don't know where one is supposed to begin and the other ends. So It's a kind of schizophrenia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it manifests itself in the lives of communities, and it manifests itself in the, itself in the lives of individuals, you know? Um, perfect example, I think, from my own experience. Asked as a teenager, my youth group, multiple times to the point where I probably was just irritating people, if I am saved once and for all, why do I still sin? I mean, it seems to me that if I'm saved, I should be living a perfect life. Is God a masochist of some sort towards me that he is um, he's like, well, you're saved, but you know, you still need to go through these trials and tribulations so you appreciate what I've given to you? Or is there actually a benefit, a value, a purpose, a meaning to these things that I go through? You know, like, what is the case here? Well, the whole issue arises out of out of a presupposition that there is a separation between my salvation and my physical life. If I am saved, that has to do with the soul. Then why do I still sin? That has to do with the body. The question is actually, at its heart, why do I experience a separation between soul and body? Well, that's kind of a definition of death, separation of soul and body. So why do I experience death daily in my life if I have received salvation, life, life abundant? Well, our, our tendency to address that is to spiritualize it. And so it becomes ultimately, we don't know how to actually spiritualize something. <laughs> this is an interesting element of it. We don't know how to spiritualize it. So what do we do? We transform it into intellectual things. We turn it, transform it into emotional things. Now, the two elements of that that are interesting. One is that we have this instinctual understanding that in order even to spiritualize something, it still has to manifest itself somehow in the physical created realm, i.e. mental, intellectual, emotional, mm -hmm. right? But we don't know where is the appropriate place to put it. Well, the appropriate place to put it is actually in all aspects of our life. I am a physical being. That is where my salvation is manifest. I'm an intellectual being. That is, although my intellect is only ankle deep, but still, you know, that is where that is manifest as well. I'm an emotional being. My emotions are taken up into that spiritual life as well. There's not a, there may be a paradoxical relationship in our experience with, between the spiritual and the natural or whatnot, but there is not a relationship of opposition or there's no antithesis between those two. It's not that one replaces the other. In fact, it's a symbolic relationship. The word symbol in the Greek means to bring two realities together into one. Well, that's very similar to a definition of the incarnation, to bring the divine life and the human life, the natural, the created life, together in one, without a union without confusion or mingling, right? So, Ultimately, when we start to parse this out, what we are actually looking for is to incarnate our faith in every aspect of our life in imitation of the incarnation of Christ. And, and that is precisely what Christ offers us for a context for our relationship with him when he offers us the church. He says, look, I, in my person, perfectly incarnate the divine life in human conditions. Now you become one with me as I am with the Father, John 17, and you will be able to do that as well. So you, you become one with my body. 
You bring all of your human life into that context and this will be the possibility for you. That's not something that we can do on our own precisely because that is the work of God. So I can't say, you know, I have a very high sacramental view of food. Therefore, this meal is going to be Eucharistic for me. I'm going to make it the Eucharist. Because I have a high sacramental view of food, it's going to be the body and blood of Christ. I can't do that. That power does not reside within me. I'm a creature. That power to transfigure something in that way is, it only comes from God. So I have to take my food into the body of Christ where he transfigures it. He does so without in any way diminishing what it is in its nature. So obviously I'm alluding to the Eucharist. Yeah. We do not hold to any view of transubstantiation or any sort of definition or parameters for what happens in that mystery. It is bread and wine, and it is body and blood, period. It's a mystery. He does not diminish the nature of the bread and the wine. He does not replace them. It doesn't just look like bread and wine, but is really body and blood. It is true bread and wine and true body and blood. Christ is true God and true man. I, as a Christian, am truly in my nature, myself, human, and yet by the grace of God, I am also Christ. The church is the same thing. In its nature, it is divinely God, the Son of God, and yet at the same time, it is all of those who are members of that, human in that element. United, without commingling or confusion. So the church, the one true church, is one because there's only one Christ. It's true because Christ is the truth. It's the church because it is the people of God who are united in Christ. You do have parameters on which Christians are allowed to take the Eucharist with you. Right. And uh, that's because Unlike most Western traditions, we do not see the Eucharist as being the source of union, but the outcome of union. So, again, notice that when I say the word orthodox means right belief and right worship, so obviously at the heart of that worship would be the Eucharist, you know, as the sacrament par excellence or whatever, but the right belief comes first. So it is unity in faith, unity in the person of Christ, the truth that Christ is, that comes first, and then we are able to have communal unity in the Eucharist. Unlike, currently, the Roman Catholic practice towards the Orthodox Church, which says that the Eucharist is a means to unity, and therefore Roman Catholics are allowed, permitted by their bishops, to partake of the Eucharist in the Orthodox Church, and vice versa. We would not permit that, because we see it in the reversed way that the Eucharist is not the means to union, but the, uh, the sign and the symbol of a real union, in truth. And the simpler version of following Christ and uh, agreement and affirmation of the most core elements of the gospel are not enough there? Well, no, actually, I, I would say that they're not, um, because... You can't just recreate that one body, because it is Christ, it's the person of Christ. So you can't recreate that. And I would also say that that there have to be some safeguards to ensure that it is in fact the same faith. I grew up with people who 
on the surface, I would have thought, believed exactly the same thing about who Christ is and about the incarnation and salvation as me. We were in the same church, we sat through the same Bible studies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then in some instances, I remember having conversations with people where I discovered that what they actually believed about the incarnation was, for instance, that uh, the Virgin Mary gave birth to a man and God then placed divinity into that man. Well, that is actually a heresy in Christian history. It is not the classical understanding of the Incarnation, and uh, I did not agree with it then, and I don't agree with that now. So to profess that we believe in Christ as the Son of God, become man, well, unfortunately, with the vagaries of the human mind and human language, those words don't always mean the same thing for everybody. And so you have to ensure that there is truly a profession of the same faith. And in theory, and generally in practice, there are safeguards for that in the Church. Having said that, I, as a priest, am fully aware that you have parishioners sometimes who do not hold to those same things, and that is something that, frankly, needs to be corrected in order to not make them toe the line, but in order to bring them into the fullness of truth where they will find the fullness of life. Okay, so this is actually really important. I'm, I'm used to being in settings where it's seen as helpful, beneficial, um, to simplify the message of the gospel to as small a soundbite as you can, and to find maybe the two or three things that best encapsulate the Christian life in, in a one-sentence form. Okay, to like use a couple Bible verses maybe that sort of summarize everything. Right. And what you're saying is that that's dangerous. Yeah, because it's it disincarnates the faith. Um, it takes it and it makes it an intellectual um, practice. Or reduces it just to a couple memory verses. Exactly. If you know yeah. these things, then you're in. Yeah, it's the difference between a minimalist approach to the faith and a, and a maximalist approach, or it's the difference between having part of something or the fullness of something. I'll tell you, by our nature, we want the fullness of things typically. If I were to give my kids half of a cookie, they would want the other half of the cookie. You know, we want the fullness of things. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that's part of what it, what it boils down to uh, in that sense. But also it is about a safeguarding and that the, uh, safeguarding the truth and an understanding that you only safeguard the truth by safeguarding the experience of the person of Christ. So while you can use a soundbite for argumentation, and I mean that in the classical sense of the word, then, I mean, that, that has a role to play, but, only, but it also has very specific limitations to it, to how far you can go. You cannot live a life in Christ based on a soundbite. The why? Because we're talking about life in God Himself. God is not a soundbite. You cannot put Him in a box like that. Every soundbite you create in order to encapsulate your faith, God Himself will blow up through the circumstances of your life. Because what He wants is He wants a conversion of the heart, the mind, the soul, the strength of our life. He wants all of us, not just parts of us. He doesn't just want the mind, so mm-hmm. He will wreck your life I'm obviously being melodramatic here, but it will seem like he will wreck our life in order to wake us up to him. I'll give you an example here. I think this is number four for C.S. Lewis. I think it's in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy, towards the end, has a conversation with Aslan, and, and they're talking about some of the experiences that she's had through the process of the book, and he says, I was the lion that you saw in the dark. 
I was the large cat you saw by the river. I was the rustling in the bush that kept pushing you further towards my purposes for you. So God continually creates or permits circumstances in our life to push us closer to what he's trying to reveal to us, which is he himself. Like he's trying to bring us not to a newer, better, fuller, truer conception of him, but experience of him. A manifestation of him that we can participate in, not solely intellectually or emotionally, but in all respects. So a sacramental, an inc- a sacramental view of life in Christ, in the Church, of life in general, is an incarnational one. But it's not enough to just take sound bites or anything like that and decide to recreate. Not that I'm saying that everybody's trying to recreate. We are obviously speaking in generalized terms here. Like, I would never have said that I was trying to recreate something when I was in the various different traditions I was part of. I sure. was trying to live what, according to the best lights I had in my life at that time. But it's not enough to take these parts and then try to build a hole around one part, um, because again, like I said earlier, like again, like using that example, again, I have a sacramental view of food, that doesn't mean that I can make it the Eucharist. I have to be united to the one who can make it the Eucharist, who transfigures it into something different. And, um, and so that's that is what happens when we when we unite ourselves to Christ in his church there there was something i was there was something i was going to say earlier and i i i got myself off my train of thought on that so forgive me but if it comes okay. back i will i'll bring it up because i th- i thought in my hubris that it would be okay. a, l- a little bit helpful but i have i have one more <coughs> version of the overall question of this discussion that I'd like to try on you. Um, sure. If, okay, hypothetically, if organized Christianity were to suddenly die out, would the church continue to exist on material earth? Yes. So there is actually a saying in the, in the church that if we were to, of course, I, I, get, I, I say yes, and then I'm, gonna, I'm about to qualify it, that if the scriptures were to, every copy of the scriptures were to be burned, every copy of the liturgy were to be burned, all the vestments of the priest, all the icons, all the church buildings, etc., if all of that were to disappear, the church, would, the church would still be in existence, because the church is not those things. The church is not the institution. It is institutional because we as humans are institutional. It's ritual because we are ritual. So, yes, it would still exist, and we would immediately begin to rebuild the institution, the ritual, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. Okay. Because that's our nature. Yeah. Okay. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Dark Ages in the West. You lost all of not only the writings, obviously, of, of Aristotle and those things which were regained, but you also lost all of the Church Fathers. The primary one that was regained in the West was primarily Augustine, but still, lost all of that during the Middle Ages. Well, when it was all found again, nobody said, oh, we don't, we don't need any of that stuff. They immediately took all of it. In fact, some would argue 
that they took it with such zeal that they took it without discernment. And therefore they accepted both the good and the bad, say, in St. Augustine's writings, right? But they immediately, as soon as they had that, tried to recreate what had been lost. So last time we talked, you used a phrase several times that I really liked, but I at the time I didn't draw attention to it. You kept saying uh, cosmos from chaos. Mm. This That seems to be another way of saying what you're saying right now, that part of what it means to be human in the first place is to try to organize chaos into order. Now that phrase, though, is interesting to me because you didn't say order out of chaos, you said cosmos. Right. So I'm curious to know kind of the background of that. Well, I think that, well, I I will admit that when I said it, I was not necessarily thinking of all the nuances. It just was the way I chose to say it. I think that there are some important uh, presuppositions to that phrase. So, yes, I did not say order out of chaos because order brings us back to issues of organization and institution. Yeah. Chaos brings us back to a sense of world and experience and participation and all of that sort of thing. And um, uh, there's a, there's a, for lack of a better way to put it, there's sort of a personal element that's involved in that rather than a juridical element. And I think that that is oftentimes at the heart of a lot of the presuppositions when, when, when we dialogue over the issue of the church, and we bring up issues of institution and organization, we are thinking about it in juridical terms. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I follow. Okay, so Western Christianity, by and large, is framed in, term, in, in, in the language of, the, of Latin. Okay. Latin is an excellent language for law. Greek, on the other hand, is an excellent language for theology and philosophy. You, okay. can, you can take a basic, simple... Uh, Greek word, you can add prefixes and suffixes to it and create all kinds of nuances. Latin is a very precise language, and uh, therefore it's very good at being able to set forth precisely definitions of law. It's a legal language. Yeah. And um, when that has been applied to theology, it has become something that is then assumed into the phronema, the mind, of course that's a Greek word, but the mind of, of the church in the West, to think about theology in legal terms. And, and very literally, there are forms of salvation, understandings of soteriology that are literally legalistic yeah. approaches to yeah. it. But even where somebody does not necessarily hold to that, it's very difficult in the West to separate oneself from a legal language about things. And so when we think of organization, when we think of institution, coming out of a Protestant, a Reformation background, coming out of a Latin legalistic language, we tend to see those things as being something that needs to be defined, delineated, and then creating prescriptions. And uh, and there's there's a... I mean, literally, there's a legal way in which to understand this thing and to fulfill it or not to fulfill it. But from the Eastern phronema mind, the Eastern Church's approach to these things, the ancient historic approach to it, it's not about legal definitions or legal identities as an institution or something like that. It is about relationship to Christ, and also, by extension, relationship to your neighbor, to, uh, to the other person whom you bring into relationship with God. So when we talk about cosmos out of chaos, we are using that mind frame. Is not about a legal understanding that we are we are setting an order to things, and now everything's supposed to follow it in a legal, militaristic, or whatever sort of way. 
just throwing those terms out there, you know. They're not the only ones or even necessarily always the best ones to use. Instead, what we're talking about is an understanding of relationship. Cosmos is something where things are related to each other. It's personal. You can fulfill or not fulfill a law, and the law does not have to consider you as being personal. It's just, did you fulfill the law? Did you not fulfill the law? Cosmos is a relationship between creatures and developing a unity within that. That is what the cosmos is. It's about unity, not about order. Hence, you can have diversity within the cosmos, you can have diversity within the church, even when it manifests itself in an institutional way, um, because at its most fundamental level it is about unity, not about uh, everybody towing a particular line or something like that. So we look at Genesis, we see that the Spirit hovered over the waters, and the Father, through the Word and the Spirit, brought cosmos, literally the way we usually think of it, into existence out of the chaos of the Mm -hmm. waters. We, as Orthodox, interpret the baptism of Christ as being the same way, and that's manifest in the way that we depict that in our icon of of theophany, of the baptism of Christ. We would say that you see this in uh, Genesis when God brings before Adam all of the animals for him to name them, all right? You have all these animals, and it's not like God used up all of his creative juices and couldn't come up with names for the animals, and so he said, oh, you know what, I'm going to take a break, Adam, you do this. No, he was showing, he was educating, mentoring Adam in his priestly role of making cosmos out of chaos, that these are not just abstract animals or abstract parts of creation out there, but that the role of humanity was to give them a name before God, was to practice a priestly, Eucharistic, we would say now, sort of role, and in doing so created communion, unity, via the idea of a name. Um, and that's also, we would that would all play into how we understand what happened at the Tower of Babel as well. Yeah. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about the Tower of Babel as really being a positive thing because it, it sort of celebrates diversity or at least gives us the possibility for diversity. There was diversity before that. There's absolutely nothing about unity that means you can't have diversity. In fact, it's implied. You don't have unity between two things that are identical to each other. You have unity within diversity. Diverse things yeah. united to each other. Well, we, we tend to think that unity means uniformity. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it does not. Not at all. Um, there's a richness, there is a diversity, there is a beauty to the cosmos that God created and to the sort of microcosmos that we as a royal priesthood are called to recreate in yeah. our participation in the cosmic plan of salvation that is absolutely a mystery, is absolutely divine. And for number five with C.S. Lewis here, from The Weight of Glory, with regard to our neighbors, our participation in this determines whether the person we see, you and I seeing each other across this table, becomes either like a god or a goddess, or the worst nightmare we've ever seen, as he basically says. You know, we, the weight of glory is the, my, the weight of glory I bear is your glory. I bear the weight of your glory based on how I treat you. That is a priestly vocation. And yeah. I mean, that's why we say in the Orthodox Church that uh, the vocation of the priesthood is a vocation of reconciliation. 
between man and God, man and man, his neighbor, and man and creation. And when you filter the idea of salvation through all of that, salvation becomes something that is cosmic. So it's not just about saving my soul and let the rest of it be damned, literally. Mm -hmm. It is cosmic. It is a renewal. Revelation speaks to the idea that it is a renewal of heaven and earth. All things will... Salvation is cosmic. And uh, so there's a sense in which the new cosmos in the chaos of sin is the church. It is heaven. And the church then becomes sort of like a... um, well, it's, it's a penetration of heaven, of that cosmos, of this renewed cosmos, penetration of that into a fallen world. And that even in of itself, going back to what we've talked about throughout this entire time, the very fact that that is our conceptual understanding of the Church implies that there is a, a, a special, a unique kind of unity amongst the members that are within it. Because you can't have a church that is a manifestation of heaven in the fallen world. You can't have that manifestation of heaven if you have the fractures and consider that to be okay. Like, I don't care if a person is some version of Protestant, Roman Catholic, or Orthodox, or what. The divisions that exist within Christianity across the board, first of all, is shameful. It's, it's, it should grieve every single one of us. As one of the church fathers said, the division between heaven and hell run right through the heart of each person. It should grieve us. We could I'll take that and sort of change it just a little bit and say that the, the division between the churches, which is a manifestation in some sense of the brokenness of the world in the lives of Christians that shouldn't be there, that that should run through the heart of each one of us Christians. So there's no room for any kind of um, arrogance or condescension or superiority from anybody anywhere in any tradition at all. All of us experience that brokenness, and all of us, no matter what tradition we come from or find ourselves in, whether we were born into it or have converted to it, all of us should be desiring and praying for that perfect unity in Christ, that is that one true church. That's why I keep trying to get away from, well, why is the Orthodox Church the true church? Okay, so we can talk about that issue. That really boils down to an understanding of apostolic succession as to why specifically this entity called the Orthodox Church can profess to be connected to that one true church in a unique way. I would say that you could argue that all Christian traditions are connected to it in some way, but I think that there, again, there's a there's a difference between that and being fully connected to it. Well, we can return yeah. to our original martial arts analogy there. Yes. Like I could, if we had all the surviving documents, I could trace my karate instructor's uh, lineage all the way back to Japan. Um, right. That doesn't necessarily mean that it looks the same as it would have in Japan 500 years ago. Right. And... So a couple of things there, yeah. He could he could profess something like that, and it doesn't necessarily mean that he is actually connected to that tradition. Um, 
you could look at it and you could decide you're going to recreate. So you trace it all the way back to whatever the origin is. And then you say, okay, well, I'm going to recreate that now. It doesn't mean that it's connected to it. On the other hand, though, the very practice of anything like that shows that there's something about that idea that is important to us. Mm -hmm. And you see that in the scriptures because you see genealogy after genealogy in the Old Testament. We are the very, the very, um, New Testament conception and argument for Christ as being the Messiah is in multiple different ways to show that he is in the lineage of David, that he is fulfilled in, you know, in Hebrews, that he's fulfilled the Aaronic priesthood as well as the priesthood of Melchizedek. Like there are all these different elements in which we are trying to show that there is a family connection here and that he fulfills and at the same time somehow supersedes all of that. The book of Hebrews is all about that. You, you believe that you believe X about angels, well, he's superior to the angels. You believe X about Moses and the law, well, he's superior to Moses and he's the giver of the law. You believe this about the priesthood and the sacrificial system, well, he's the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't say, at no point in the New Testament does it say, you believe in the priesthood, well, listen, priesthoods are no, that, a priest are no longer valuable in Christ. We don't need priests anymore. Uh, you had your fasting as a Jew, Fasting is no longer useful. No, Christ said, when you fast, you pray to God, you don't need to pray to God anymore because he dwells within you. Uh, you had feasts and things like that, you don't need feasts anymore. No, wait, wait, the Last Supper was at Passover. You know, we have all these. There, there's not, on the one hand, there's not what we normally think of as being an abolishment of those things. It is eliminated only in the sense in which it is assumed up into that which fulfills it in Christ. And, and, and at the same time, because it is Christ himself who saves us, Paul tells us that it is the faith of Christ that saves us. Not even, although it's oftentimes translated this way, our faith in Christ. It's the faith of Christ that saves us. Because that's the case, we're no longer tied down to some kind of obligation to a law that law being either the Old Testament law or even the new law in Christ. What we are tied to voluntarily in, in willful choosing and obedience is we have absolutely committed ourselves to the person of Christ. We've replaced a law with the person of Christ. And instead of seeking obedience or towing the line to a law, we are in allegiance and obedience and loyalty, fidelity to Christ himself. And so now we're free from worrying about what is legal and what is not legal. All things are permissible. Not all things are necessarily beneficial, but that doesn't mean necessarily across the board. It may not be beneficial now, but it could be later on, you know, and vice versa or something like that. But we're now free in Christ. I don't have to, I'm no longer tied to having to eat Christian cookies and wear Christian underwear. Gets back know? to the whole rhythm thing. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it now becomes a rhythm of freedom in a sense. And we are in indeed free in Christ. The truth shall set you free. Free for what? Well, first of all, free from something, free from sin, free from being bound to a law which was only meant to be a tutor, which was only meant to show us our sin so that we would desire and crave Christ and freedom in him, but then free for something, free to love him without fear, without um, shame, without anything like that, free to be able to see God and yet live, which was not possible before, free to receive Christ's own life as our life, free to receive the Spirit dwelling within us, free to receive my neighbor, 
not as a stranger, not as an enemy, not as somebody in some form of opposition to me, but as my neighbor, as one in whom I see the very same Christ that I see within myself. So I have received God, I've received my neighbor, I've received myself, and things like all the very physical elements of our life in the church through the Eucharist and the blessings of our food and the holy water and uh, holy unction for healing and all these different things, like all of that, I've received also back the created order. So now there truly is cosmos because I am now in communion with everything. Hmm. That is the church. That is what the early Christian fathers, that's what the apostles wanted. That's what Christ prayed for in John 17. I don't know if I can really give you even a better, myself, my poverty, a better description of what the church is. Yeah. It's a pretty good description. Oh, pretty God. compelling. It, certainly not of, of me. I mean, yeah. yeah. I really appreciate your time, Father Matthew. Thank God. Where, I, I unfortunately, it. we're going to have to close up. Um, is there anything else that you would like to end with? I would want people to understand that in the elements of this conversation where I have spoken boldly, mm-hmm. it is not, at least insofar as I am self-aware, from a perspective of arrogance or condescension or superiority. I speak boldly because unity amongst men comes from a recognition both of where we agree and where we disagree. And I speak from the poverty of my person, spiritually and otherwise, and recognizing, as I say oftentimes in my parish, that I am a beggar trying to share with other beggars where I found bread. Yeah. And, uh, and so when I say these things, I say these as a means not to create animosity or frustration in between me and anybody else, between the Orthodox Church and anybody else or anything like that, but as a means towards some sort of rapprochement uh, where we're able to connect with each other again yeah. and, um, and understand that. Because I do believe that the divisions that we experience in Christianity does run through the heart of every person and should be felt by every person. As a priest, I see that on a daily basis because the majority of my parish is made up of converts. And so we all, we, I include myself, I'm a convert and I have family members who are not Orthodox. I do not see myself as being superior to them. It is by the grace of God that I am where I am, as it is the grace of God that any person is where they are. We all should be striving for the fullness of Christ. Um, But in my parish, we all experience that breakage within our families. How do I relate to somebody in my family who thinks that I have somehow rejected the heritage I grew up with? How do I relate to them when they don't understand what I have accepted? You know, how do I relate to them when X, Y, Z? That hopefully for none of us should be seeking anything other than unity with each other. Yeah. And that unity, though, that can't be a superficial unity. It has to be one that is in both truth and worship, i.e., we have a truth about who God is, what salvation is, what human life is supposed to be like, and then that has implications in the way we live our life. That's the worship part. So truth and worship. Truth, truth lived out. That's where unity comes from. 
And anything anything less than that is truly less than that. It is it's superficial, and it and it will not heal the divisions that we find within ourselves or between us and others. So I just would say, as a last thing, to understand where I try to un, I hope to understand where I come from. Um, yes, I'll leave it at that. Well, I I personally have been convicted lately, and this is my agreeing with what you just said. I I have been convicted that. If I want to see more unity in the church, I need to manifest that in my own life. Indeed, we each yeah. we each do. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, hopefully this conversation is a step in that direction, and hopefully this will be beneficial for people when they're thinking about this sort of thing. So may it be blessed by God's grace. Thank yeah. you. Forgive me. All right, signing out. <laughs>